environmental, conversations, on creative arts, scholarship, and teaching. This This is is Ecocast. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to Ecocast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Lindsay Jolivet. And I am Brandon Gulm. And thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Christina Gerhardt to the podcast. Christina is an associate professor and founder of the Environmental Humanities Initiative at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, former senior fellow at the Rachel Carson Center at the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, Germany, and former Baron Professor in Environment and the Humanities at the High Meadows Environment Institute at Princeton University, and a permanent senior fellow at the University of California at Berkeley. Christina has been awarded fellowships by the Fulbright Commission, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Newberry Library, and the Rachel Carson Center. She has held visiting appointments at Harvard University, the Free University of Berlin, Columbia University, and the University of California at Berkeley. She is currently the editor-in-chief of IL, Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and the Environment, the quarterly journal of the Association for the Study of Literature and the Environment, published by Oxford University Press. And she serves on the editorial board of the PMLA, Publication of the Modern Languages Association, the advisory board of the Journal of Environmental Media, and the editorial boards of Media and the Environment, and the Environmental Humanities Series at Rutledge. She herself is also an environmental journalist, covering the annual UN climate negotiations, domestic renewable energy legislation, hurricanes, and sea level rise, all with a focus on environmental justice. She has been published under Tina Gerhardt in The American Prospect, Gris.org, The Nation, The Progressive, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly, among other venues. Additionally, she has published extensively in the field of environmental humanities. She is the author of Sea Change, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, which we'll be discussing today, and editor of Climate Change, Hawaii and the Pacific, which is currently under review with Duke University Press. Christina, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, you weren't kidding when you were saying earlier how busy you were. That is Mm -hmm. an impressive, impressive bio. (laughs) Yes, we are very honored to have you join us. Oh, I'm so thrilled. Oh, yay. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to start today with my folklore section. And the folklore we're going to be discussing today is mentioned in Sea Change. So I thought it would be an appropriate addition to our discussion. In the Dominican Republic, there are warnings against going into the forest on a full moon night. The unlucky individual who fails to heed these warnings and enters the woods may find themselves suddenly enveloped in an unnatural silence as all the birds and beasts disappear, the eeriness of that quiet moment broken seconds later by a whining howl coming from the darkness between the trees. What happens next depends on which version of the folktale you've heard, but one thing is for certain, you've been found by La Ciguapa, most often described as a strangely beautiful female humanoid with backwards feet, La Ciguapa is violent in some tales and timid in others, described as a resident of the mountain forests on the island rather than a creature of the beaches. La Ciguapa is associated with wild freedom of the untamed woods, said to die suddenly if trapped in captivity of any kind. With the encroaching ocean and a need for many island peoples to migrate inward from the coast, perhaps a time will come when in the Dominican Republic, the tale of La Ciguapa needs to be rewritten slightly to allow for more peaceful coexistence with the inland being as people have to migrate in from the coast. And with that, let's jump into talking about sea change. So Christina, if you could start us off just with an introduction to the manuscript, 
kind of let our listeners know generally what it's about, what it looks like. Thank you. Thanks so much for the folklore intro. Um, before I jump into sea change, I just want to say it makes me think of the beautiful art of Firole by Ez. Um, she worked with maps from the David Rumsey uh, map archive at Stanford University, which I drew on among other archives for my book. And she overlaid them with images of the figure that you were mentioning, the Sigalpa. So I would just encourage your listeners to check out her work. Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean is a project that weaves together three areas of scholarship, environmental studies and environmental humanities, cartography and geography, and then creative nonfiction and Islanders poetry. And it does that to share the history and culture of islands and, importantly, the impacts of sea level rise on these frontline communities and the solutions being put forward to these effects, so often being put forward by the islanders themselves. The book Sea Change centers the voices of islanders, predominantly but not exclusively indigenous Pacific and Black Caribbean islanders, uh, their histories and their cultures, their cosmologies and their worldviews. And Sea Change also shares the history in order to reveal how we got to where we are today and to envision different futures. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so you, you specifically, you know, kind of refer to the book and, and utilize, you know, the idea and concept of an atlas in there. Um, could you talk a little bit about that inspiration, where that came from, um, you know, your choices in um, utilizing an atlas and maybe even some of the problems that you talk about related to, you know, atlases being kind of uh, land centered? Great. Yeah. Thanks for that question and for, for picking up on that important aspect of the Atlas. So the Atlas is obviously a very colonial genre. Um, I do hew to some of the traditional hallmarks of the Atlas genre. So uh, the Atlas uh, seed change uh, is in its yellows and its blues following the traditional colorings of atlases. There is a traditional size of atlases. Um, this is a little bit uh, shorter, but but when you open up the flat pages, um, that size is more or less the traditional sizing. So I'm going with some of the traditional hallmarkers, but because it's such a colonial genre, I was looking to decolonize the atlas. And then I'll come back to the continent-focused uh, part of your, your question um, in, a, in a moment, too, Brandon. The decolonizing part picks up on some of the work that radical cartographers have done. So radical cartographers have been using mapping to support social change vis-a-vis -a, -vis a whole range of in issues. So one can think about issues limited, not limited to, but including um, land use, energy, justice, incarceration, also migration, and in this way, radical cartography really cuts across disciplinary boundaries, which my book does as well. So these boundaries typically separate the fields of art, cartography, creative nonfiction, and geography, which my book mm -hmm. engages. But I'm interested in both decolonizing the atlas by looking at other ways of mapping and also in this interdisciplinary approach. So with regard to decolonizing the atlas, I include indigenous maps. For example, there's for Greenland and for the Republic of Marshall Islands, I include a wooden map for Greenland and stick charts for the Republic of Marshall Islands, respectively. Um, I can talk a little bit more about how each of uh, those work. But in terms of decontinentalizing the focus, uh, I'm drawing there on some recent work in in American studies, and specifically um, the work of uh, Michelle 
Stevens and Brian Roberts and the introduction to their book, Archipelagic American Studies. In the introduction to their book, they talk about the importance of decontinentalizing the focus with regard to American studies. So often, if you think of maps, say, of the U.S., you will have Hawaii. Uh, this holds true for Alaska, too, but to keep the island focus, you'll have Hawaii located at what some have referred to as the side table of the map. They're, they're in this mm-hmm. little box. There's no indication of the geography. And one of the first things I did when I moved to the Pacific, because I the first time I visited Hawaii was when I was doing my on-campus visit, and the second time was when I moved here. So I knew very little about the Pacific geographically mm. or historically. And so one of the first things I did when I moved to uh, Hawaii 10 years ago to start the job at the University of Hawaii was I got a map that is centering the Pacific Mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. have the oceans on the flanks of, you know, what indigenous people would refer to as Turtle Island, um, you know, North America, um, but rather that centered the ocean and had the Pacific Rim on the western edge and then North America on the eastern edge so that I would be looking at the islands every day and learning their geography, their locations, mm-hmm. and, you know, through this project also learning about their histories. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to talk more, too, about the two maps, um, the Greenland Inuit uh, wood map, as well as the Marshall Island stick charts, if you'd like. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be great. We'd love if you could just talk some more about the maps in general in your atlas, because you have an incredible selection of them, as you point out, of different styles and including both indigenous and slightly more, I suppose you could say, traditionalist. And you also have a very interesting layered approach in terms of showing sea level changes. So yeah, if you could tell us both about those types of indigenous maps, as well as just your map process in general. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for, for, for your, uh, you know, positive words about the maps. I'll definitely relay them to the cartographer. Um, Molly Roy is the cartographer. She created these maps. I wanted the Atlas to have a very sleek aesthetic. So as I mentioned, these blues and yellows are the classic colors of atlases. I also wanted to illustrate the impacts of sea level rise, meaning to visualize it. So each map map highlights the present coastline of sea level rise and then the coastline forecast by science for 2050 and 2100. And the maps for each island highlight different impacts. So for one island, I might be focusing on infrastructure, things like highways and airports that are going to be underwater or power plants and wastewater treatment facilities On another island, such as the Marshall Islands or Kiribati or Tuvalu or the Maldives, which are the world's lowest lying atolls and just, you know, mere feet above sea level rise, um, six feet is the average for the Marshall Islands. Uh, This level of inundation that's forecast by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, for 2050 or for 2100 means that the atoll is going to be underwater. So there I'm highlighting that that very mm-hmm. dire situation. If you have volcanic islands, um, which have peaks, what you often see is that people are clustered around the coastline. And so those impacts are going to be very different. But to come back to the examples um, of other kinds of islands, so Molly Roy's um, maps are complemented by other kinds of uh, maps. And the other maps that I include Uh, are wood maps. So I have some Greenland Inuit carved wooden relief maps, and they show the area where the land and water meet. 
They've been the source of a lot of confusion. The Eastern Inuit carved maps to accompany stories that were used to mm. aid with navigation. So to the Inuit, the process of making, of carving the map and the story that was relayed was often more important than the map itself. What was centered was, was the knowledge of the region, the recall and the repeating and the relaying of it in these stories. Mm. And, and basically the, the, the wooden carved maps are, are an, a device to aid in that. There's a geographer, a white geographer uh, from, from Europe who went to Greenland to, t- to learn about these maps. And he shared the story of how, as he put it, quote, an Inuit elder told me that he had drawn detailed maps of Yathkayed Lake from memory. But he smiled and said that long ago he'd thrown them away because it was the act of making them that was important. The recapitulation mm-hmm. of environmental features, not the material mm-hmm. objects themselves, end quote. So that's a very different way of relating to mapping, relating to place and knowledge about place. And that's the kind of thing that the wooden relief map that I include shares. It's based on a deep knowledge of and connection to the space. Um, some people argue that it's the very difference between cartography and map making. Hmm. And I include three of these Eastern Inuit uh, created maps. These wooden carvings are known today as the Amasilic maps. Another example that I could give from, uh, from the Pacific region is oceanic voyagers navigated the great Pacific Ocean, which they called the Moana Nui, without the use of magnetic compasses to determine direction. So that's also without the use of sextants to measure the distance mm-hmm. between a celestial body and the horizon, and without longitude, because that presupposed the, the Greenwich Meridian. So mm-hmm. what they steered by instead, and this puzzled colonizers when they first arrived in the Pacific, was how was this navigating taking place, given that they didn't have access to these kinds of navigational devices they steered by the stars and they kept course by reading the sun the swells and the shifts in wind patterns and in the marshall islands in particular they used stick charts i have an example of one in the book stick charts document understandings of swells and how islands bend Mm -hmm. around them so swells Mm -hmm. are different from waves they're longer, they're more rolling. Um, and when they move around islands, unlike waves, because they have that longer, more rolling frequency to them, they pick up the movement, they, they pick up uh, the refraction of how they bounce off of or move mm-hmm. around islands. And that's something mm-hmm. that one, if one is really attuned to the water that one is moving through, one can pick up on. So these stick charts uh, document these swells. So even if an island is is not visible on the horizon, these distant effects can be felt in the water. Oceanic navigators also use the presence of birds, um, such as terns and noddies, boobies and frigate birds, clouds, their color, their brightness and shape, to determine their proximity to the archipelagos and to islands. So one of the examples that I have in the book that I learned about is uh, what I call these these furrow-browed eyebrows, Think of just really bushy eyebrows at at a slanted angle above an island that tell you that an island is in the distance, even if you can't see it, because you can see these bushy eyebrows in this arched (laughs) way above where the (laughs) island is going to be coming up at you. That's awesome. A lot of what you're talking about um, just to... It reminds me, I I believe it was the episode we had uh, Lowell Lowell Wise on, um, but he was talking about uh, his work with... Um, th- thinking about how um, you know fiction authors and stuff often map 
within their 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 writings and stuff like that and the, the unique ways i think the alternative ways um that that we think about that because i think so often when we you know if someone says map we most people i think kind of picture that kind of standard traditional map that was in all of our school buildings and and this that and the other um and so i i i um, I think it's really, really great work that you're doing to kind of challenge that notion of of what a map might be and um, how it might be utilized and, you know, wh- where that knowledge of, of mapping is coming from and how it's being kind of explained to us. Some of the anchor points that I focus on in terms of the decolonial really focus on concepts of space and mapping is crucial mm-hmm. there and concepts mm-hmm. of time. So there's a, a whole thread running through the book about decolonial time. There are timelines that are featured in the book at the beginning of each entry. But I really thought about working in a more cyclical time notion. I'm thinking, mm. too, about all of the work in the environmental humanities concept with different conceptualizations of time. Um, obviously, the notion of uh, deep time, you know, mm-hmm. the sure. work of John McPhee. Um, but I'm also thinking about a recent book, the title of it escapes me, I'll look it up in a second, um, that is about indigenous time. And there's a couple of poetries that thematize that. But in terms of coming back to space and spatiality and, and your comments here, Brennan, about rethinking space and its relationship to mapping, the question is really what what is your center? Yeah, And that's a question at the heart of the book. So if your center is being on an island in a vast ocean in the Pacific or on an island in the Caribbean Sea, you're going to have an entirely different narrative than if you're on the continent. In that case, you use language like remote islands. If you're in the sea of islands, um, Epele Haofa is a very well-known Pacific Island theoretician, and he talks about the fact that Pacific Islanders don't view themselves as remote. He talks about the mm-hmm. fact that they view themselves mm-hmm. as very connected. Interestingly, Edward Glissant, writing in the Caribbean, um, the Martinique theoretician, talks about the re- relationality among islands as he's putting forward mm-hmm. this concept of Antillianite to think about the relationship among Antilles islands rather than always thinking about the relationship back to the colonizing entity that Césaire's negritude had previously suggested. So they're both working from a, a more horizontal relationality perspective. And I was trying mm-hmm. to think about that in terms of mapping. Yeah, and I, I love it. I'm going to kind of jump back to, to one of your earlier comments too, because um, I was really struck by that, but it, I think it connects to what you're, you're saying right now. But um, when you were talking about, you know, when you first got to Hawaii and that kind of exploration that you were doing and that, um, right. Cause in, in many ways that was your new center, right. That you, you had a, a kind of a remote, um, view or, or perspective on Hawaii that was positioned by a lot of maps and things that you saw and the ways that they, like you said, put them in a small box. They don't actually indicate that space. Um, and so I, like I, for a very, you know, uh, similar situation. So when I moved to Kansas to, to take this job, I had never been to Kansas before other than for my interview. And then when I moved out here, um, and I've, I've found myself doing very similar things in terms of kind of, um, reading some books about Kansas and trying to explore and understand this space that in, at one point was very kind of foreign to me and very different than the environments that I grew up in. Um, and so I, I guess I'm curious now, like, 
we have two examples of this. Is this something you think that just folks in like the environment of humanities are aware of where we get to a new place and we're like, Ooh, let's learn all about it. Or is it, you know, do you think it's just true of anybody who wants to <laughs> learn about where they're going to be? That's total speculation on your part. <laughs> I get so feel free to answer it or just comment. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what, <clears throat> what the answer is to that question. I think it probably does, uh, you know, vary by individuals. I think certainly living in Hawaii, and, and this book really predates um, my time in Hawaii. It, it comes out of my work as an environmental journalist. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy to talk about that more. But just to close this thread, I think one of the things that um, I have I have really learned a lot about uh, living in Hawaii is about the the politics of settler colonialism and the history of settler colonialism um, Mm -hmm. and how to be a respectful resident. This Mm -hmm. isn't my, you know, this isn't my place. This is not where I am from. And to have a bit of discomfort in everyday life as a reminder to learn, to engage, to consider, um, you know, to yeah, um, to really just to engage and to learn is really important. My previous work was on 60s decolonial movements. And so Mm. to be living in a situation where that is a daily ongoing struggle is is also very interesting. Um, The way in which this grows out of my work as an environmental journalist is that I cover the annual UN climate negotiations and they're, they, they stretch over two weeks. And what one learns when one is there for two weeks and has 193 members, uh, nation member nations stand up one by one at the end of the hurricane typhoon season is one learns the situation in the home countries. So typically, you know, last mm-hmm. year it was Pakistan was talking about the floods, um, you know, which had a, a third of its country underwater and had thousands of people, half of whom were children, um, you know, were killed by these these floods, you know, billions of dollars in, in economic loss. So people will mention these kinds of effects before they weigh in on whatever point is up for discussion at that moment. And after two weeks and every single individual nation doing that, and then there's cluster groups in UN speak, the Africa group, least developed countries, the alliance of small island states, etc. At the end of two weeks, you have a visceral sense of what's going on around the world. And then you look at a at a newspaper covering this, um, even doing a really good job with, you know, good politics. I'll just name the guardian. There is one I like to look at for its environmental coverage. They've just, you know, they decided to use the word climate crisis and, you know, had a whole rearrangement of their vocabulary a while ago to underscore the urgency of the issue. So even a venue like that, along with all sorts of other publications, will be focused mainly on the U.S.-China standoff. I don't mean to suggest that that's unimportant. I don't want listeners to to get me wrong on that. I think it's a very important piece of the puzzle. But what I noticed, and this was the impetus for the book, what I noticed was that the situation of frontline communities was not not being centered, was not being heard. Um, I think people are more aware now for a whole variety of reasons. I think the discourse has shifted. I started covering the climate um, negotiations in 2009. So in Copenhagen, is a very long time ago now. Discourse has shifted, social media, yada, yada. Um, but I still think centering um, the voices and the, you know, the impacts of, of the climate crisis on frontline communities and the voices of those who are impacted mm-hmm. is really important mm-hmm. work. That is really one of those things that, we don't get to see a lot of, I think, as everyday people. It just, as you said, it really isn't discussed. 
and it isn't really covered. And so, you know, it's great that we have someone like you who does attend these and does have that understanding of what's happening. And then also with this idea of highlighting the voices of those people, I think that your inclusion of poetry or testimony or story in your atlas from Indigenous residents from the islands you're discussing was an inspired choice, but also just a very, I think, innovative way to continue the decolonial as well as place-based and de-continental focused atlas work. So could you tell us a little bit about the the poetry and the process of bringing that sort of creative voice, if you want to say that, to an atlas? Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of including the poetry, but also the testimonies, um, thank you for highlighting and recognizing the poetry and the voices of the islanders. I So I work in the environmental humanities, as we all do. So weaving the science together, in this case, the science relevant for sea level rise together with the poetry was really important. Most of all, this atlas seeks to center the voices of islanders. So to that end, and that's in addition to the poetry, I interviewed scientists, negotiators at the International UN Climate Conference, ministers of environment and energy, fisher folk, farmers, often subsistence in both cases, um, teachers, because hunger is often an issue on these islands, and then the kids can't concentrate and the schools are closed down on some of these islands, or the heat crisis that we can think about at the time of recording unfolding um, in India and South Asia. So I interviewed um, a whole range of people to learn about the impacts of sea level rise and the, the solutions being put forward to address them. In addition to that, I included the poetry and the text by Islanders that you mentioned. The poems often but not always uh, engage climate change, not always sea level rise. But my hope and my goal is that they convey or give a sense of life on the islands. And it's a polyphonic or one can call it a polyvocal approach. It's one that's used and celebrated by many Islanders in the Pacific and in the Caribbean. So so here in, in Hawaii, in, in teaching indigenous Hawaiian or Pacific Island studies, um, as my colleagues do in the environmental humanities program that you mentioned that I'm setting up, in indigenous cosmologies or worldviews, one cannot think about the aina, the land, or the vai, the water, that one is reliant on and living in tandem with without thinking the science together with all of the stories the Molello about the island's resources, right? And and they're not viewed as resources. They're viewed as, I mean, almost kin, right, in that sense. And so I think, you know, in some ways, the creation of university systems as we know them in North, in the North and in the West, this is itself a colonial construct, like the separation mm-hmm. of knowledges into, you know, the whole Linnaean classificatory system, um, mm-hmm. but just the, the creation of, of separate colleges and departments and disciplines. In other systems of thought, these disciplines are not divided. They're thought together. They're, in fact, um, indivisible. Last night, Amitav Ghosh was uh, here giving a keynote for mm-hmm. a two-day conference on climate change in South Asia that's taking place here today and tomorrow. And he was talking about the importance of unlearning when Mm -hmm. somebody asked him about the work 
that's being done or should be done by the academy. And he said so much of the, first off, he said, you know, this is a little bleak, but he said a lot of work that needs to be done just isn't being done at universities. And a lot of us groaned, but he also admitted he's not at a university. So he's not best placed (laughs) to answer that question. He said, I write books. That's what I do. (laughs) Um, But he really said that a lot of the work is unlearning. And I think he couldn't, he couldn't be more right. It's about at once undoing and then thinking new structures without repeating the structures that have led us to the crisis that we're in. And I get questions all the time about, I was presenting on the Atlas to a group of graduate students at Princeton when I, I was there as the, the Baron uh, Visiting Professor of Environment and Humanities. And the faculty advisor said, why do you keep going on about colonialism? And I took the question <laughs> to my undergraduates the next day. <laughs> And I had a, a young undergraduate um, who who is African-American, has a Nigerian first and last name, no accent. I don't know her story. But anyways, her hand shot up in two seconds. She grew up in the <laughs> Port Arthur Houston part of Texas, which is both cancer alley and flood prone. And they're related, those two issues. Mm-hmm. Um, see Louisiana and avoid a long digression on that topic. Yeah. You know, the oil industry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, extraction of water and oil and mm-hmm. okay, land sink and sea level rise. Okay. So she, her hand shot up right away and she said, so you don't re-traumatize people that are already traumatized. And, and I thought exactly, but what that means, cause I just gave a talk on the book last week here at Manoa and somebody said, well, you could just say colonialism got us into this mess. A colleague said that. And I was like, mm-hmm. I told this story and that was her response. And I went home and I kept chewing on the comment. I'm like, something doesn't sit right with me. Like, that's not the end of the story. It's not that she's wrong, but there's something chewing. I'm chewing on it. It won't let me go. And I realized it's not about how we got here and end of discussion. It's about what we're going to do going forward. Like, I'm sure you have a similar experience. My students, um, especially at Princeton, when I was teaching courses on sea level rise and uh, islands one semester and cities another semester, they're overwhelmed, mm-hmm. understandably. Mm-hmm. There's the financial crisis. There's the job crisis. There's the student loans. You know, there's the climate crisis. There's keep going down the list. They're totally overwhelmed. And so I started focusing, and this is where journalism comes in, on a part of journalism called solutions journalism, and just off ending every class on a note of solutions. What can you do? You don't have to do everything. You don't have to address everything. Pick your niche. I'm doing sea level rise. Somebody else is doing drought. <laughs> I'm doing islands. Somebody else <laughs> might be doing cities. Like, just pick your, your beat, your, you know, your thing and do it, and any action is better than inaction. Um mm-hmm. But in focusing on solutions, it's not only about how we got here in designing the solutions. This is where all of the speculative fiction, all the beautiful sci-fi that people in, in black futurist studies, Afrofuturism, the work of um, indigenous scholars in this area becomes so important because they're imagining the kind of world that we could have. And it's up to whomever to experiment with some of those solutions. But the people who are in the humanities are the ones who really have the training and the awareness of colonialism and imperialism to say, ah, but here, you know, if you're focused on environmental justice, but here's how this frontline community became a frontline community. And here's, Mm -hmm. here's how you would include them in this conversation. Hence the inclusion back to your question that started this Mm -hmm. thread. Um, (laughs) 
here's why you want to include these these communities and their voices in coming up with these solutions so you don't re-traumatize. Mm -hmm. That's what that means to me. So the High Meadows Environmental Institute at Princeton, and this is, you know, the way that I'm trying to set up the environmental humanities here. And I think, again, this is common for campuses across um, North America and, and elsewhere. I realize your mm -hmm. listeners are global in the Pacific and Europe, you know, wherever. Um <laughs> We had it at Princeton, we had people in the natural environmental sciences. Uh, that was one node. Environmental engineering was another node. A third node was public policy. And the fourth was environmental humanities. So I had our students, I asked them to tell me how they would redesign a project that they were already doing for another class, public policy. Mm -hmm. We read Sarah Broom's The Yellow House about mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, she doesn't talk about the public policy mistakes that led up to that crisis, nor the ones that were responsible coming out. She touches on them really briefly, but I had public policy students who did fantastic work explaining that. I have students, uh, had students at uh, Princeton who were working on drones that fly around and track methane. But I said, redo your projects for another class and tell me how you're, like, redo it engaging the environmental humanities thinking that you have learned through this class. Take the lessons mm -hmm. from this. And I think if each of us in the environmental humanities do that in our teaching and in our research, I think the kinds of work that scientists are coming up with would look radically different. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I mean, okay, it's one of those weird, I always say, I love that idea of this. And I, the context of what I actually love is weird, but the, the <laughs> idea that is generated from it is what I love. But um, that, that, that point you made about you know the re-traumatizing re the traumatized, um, yeah, that, that's a lot of the work that um, I didn't use that direct language, but in my dissertation with like post-Katrina literature was looking at um, the ways that those stories are just happening to those people over and over again, and they're making use of those stories um, to try to make change and stuff like that. Um, but I, I was also struck. I was just at a conference. Um, just a local, it was a state conference on, on writing and, and, uh, and uh, literature um, just last Friday. And uh, I, I attended a panel on um, grading contracts and ungrading. And they brought up a, a really similar point um, that I had never really considered before. Um, just with the, the, you know, a lot of times the students struggle when you do a very different grading system. Um, and they don't like that because they've been kind of, ingrained in a certain system. Um, but um, they were pointing out that, you know, it's, a, it's an opportunity to have that discussion with those students about, um, well, you're going to be the future leaders, right? If, you know, yeah, it stinks that, that we have a kind of a quote unquote standard of grammar that is a very white colonial standard of what is quote unquote proper grammar. Um, but you, you, you know, we can have those conversations now we can challenge those notions in this classroom. And so then when you're a leader somewhere in the future, you can kind of, um, you know, help, help make that change happen. Um, so I, I really love that idea that you were kind of, you know, um, um, alluding to with that. Um, this is a very, you know, my, my tangential way of kind of leading into a conversation that um, I would love to actually hear about um, either um, in terms of, of your work itself, um, you know, kind of maybe maybe uh, challenging you in the same way that you challenge your students. To, you know, what, what are the, the kind of the solutions? How is this helping us look to the future and look forward in some ways? Um, and maybe even uh, as well, I, I always love a good... Um, you know, how are you bringing your work into your classrooms in terms of, um, you know, teaching some of that stuff? So. 
Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, in terms of the 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 politics of grading, um, at the P PMLA, we received a submission on ungrading um, recently, and we were it led to a long discussion about the importance of discussing the politics of grading and of ungrading and different systems of grading. Um, I think to, to come to, to the question that you, you raised at the end, I mean, part of the project of sea change and Atlas of Islands and a Rising Ocean was specifically, you know, again, being at the UN climate negotiations, um, realizing that what we don't lack scientific studies on this topic. Right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We don't lack scientific knowledge. I mean, I'm not saying anything that isn't, you know, news to you two or to your listeners, I'm sure. So um, so the, so we know that it's really, as many have pointed out along the way, it's really, a, you know, it's narration. And that's an argument that often gets made in by the environmental humanities in terms of its work. But then, but then what stories are we narrating and from what vantage point, right? So again, that, that was a key part of, of this book. And on the one level, I mean, you know, that's, it's on the one level, Lindsay, you had mentioned the, the, um, you know, the, the aesthetic qualities of the book or the fact, you know, some of the things that aren't going to come across in the podcast, um, the, the maps you had highlighted. Um, there's also work by Trevor Paglin, um, which he kindly allowed me to reprint um, because I pick up on some of Nicole Starazelski's work about infrastructure between islands um, in, her, in her book, Undersea uh, Networks. And his, his work picks up on that and illustrates some of that. So some of his work is included. Um, so it's really a coffee table book that's trying to <laughs> smuggle environmental politics yeah, that's great. <laughs> into everyone's homes. The texts are really short. They're three to, mm -hmm. you know, two to three pages. I gave talks about the book all across the U.S. And I was doing double duty. On the one hand, I was doing what one does when one gives guest lectures, which is to seek feedback on the project <laughs> at hand to strengthen it. And on the other hand, I was looking at how environmental humanities programs were, were structured. But to come back to the book, I said to everyone in attendance, this is a post-tenure book because it's so <laughs> interdisciplinary and it's yes. just doing something. But I wish that that wasn't the case, which comes back to my points about Absolutely. the structure of academia, yes. your points about ungrading, the conversations yes. we're having. We're getting more submissions at Isle, also the PMLA that are co-authored common in the sciences, not in the humanities. How do you give credit mm -hmm. for that? How do you give credit for public humanity? You know, all of these kinds of conversations. Um, but I wanted to smuggle the politics in through a coffee table. I wanted to center Islanders' voices and really encourage colleagues to think about, and this comes back to, you know, questions about what kinds of books have I read that are inspiring, um, really encourage colleagues to think about the ethics and the politics of working with in solidarity with communities. How does one do that in a non-extractive way? Mm -hmm. How does one do that in a supportive way that is supportive of that work supported by the communities one is engaging mm. through ongoing relationships that have been forged and it honors the wishes of the communities one is engaging. That doesn't have a top-down approach, but rather a bottom-up approach. I mean, a lot of really complicated questions that also, um, you know, that have to do with political organizing, but that also have to do with what and how and who we teach. And obviously, you know, I'm suggesting what and how we do research and who we <laughs> engage and how. 
So that's a lot of the threads that are coming through in, in this book in terms of the kinds of solutions that I'm, I don't want to say I'm suggesting that feels a little too big for me. Um, I would like to just be part of setting a, a stage or contributing to, you know, creating an environment that's, that's open, that brings different voices and peoples in. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, I would love to keep going, but it is time to, to move to end on a roll. So um, I've got a, I don't have a 12 sided die. I'm at school, um, but I do have a randomizer ready to go. So I'm going to give that a roll and whichever question comes up, we'll go ahead and ask you that one. So, Oh my God, I, I we, have a couple that I don't have answers for another one. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, we'll, 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 we'll see what happens. Yep. Okay. Okay. So we have number Okay, it's number twelve. So this one might be fitting, um, and it might be a it might be a fun one, uh, considering we were just joking about how busy you are. Um, so, what do you like to do on a day off when when you do get one? Um, what's a day off? No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but lately, it's been that way. Um, like, go for a bike ride to the ocean or the bay, mm-hmm. and then go for a swim in the ocean or the bay, and then eat, and then bike some more, and then gather with friends for dinner. That would be an ideal day. That's that. Yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty awesome day. That does <laughs> sound. That sounds like the perfect day. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Well, hopefully, you will you will get to do one of those days pretty soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for the interview. (laughs) Yes. And while we're wishing you a good day off and hope that that can happen soon, we know you're still in the midst of talking about this book to lots of people. So how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Do you have a website, social media, we can link to people so they can, you know, Uh, see what you're up to? I'm in the process of getting a website going that gathers everything together. Uh, related to my environmental journalism and sea change. Mm-hmm. There is a page for sea change at UC press that has okay. the book tour information. Uh, if listeners are going to the Asley conference in Portland, I will be giving a talk at Powell's bookstore during the conference. And then I'm also on Twitter at Tina Gerhardt EJ. So it's my, it's Tina, my last name. And then the letters capitalized E and J um, it's a, it's, it's a lot of environmental journalism and the latest policy. So some people find that quite boring. I find it quite interesting and important. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. We, I will uh, get a bunch of that stuff into the show notes, uh, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And definitely I, I will, uh, what, what, which night at Asley is your talk going to be, do you know, or day? Tuesday, July 11th at 7 p.m. at the Powell's Bookstore in the Beaverton branch. So it's not the downtown one, but I've been reassured that it's lovely and easily accessible by public transportation. Cool. Awesome. They have a bike reassembly station at the Portland Airport if anybody wants to be really amazing and not just take their bike on on the train. Um, That's a highlight I love about that airport. That's uh that's pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 So definitely check out, um, her talk at Asley and I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll definitely be sure to, to put that date and time in the show notes as well so that people can, can, can track it down. So, um, yeah, well, thank you again so much for, for joining us. This has been uh, a real, real treat. We, we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you both for the invitation. This has been a highlight. I really appreciate it.
Awesome. Thanks for and, the work uh, in general. Yeah. <laughs> thank, yeah, you. thank you. <laughs> um, and thank you all for listening. Uh, it's, it's, uh, if you've got ideas for episodes, um, you know, you can get a hold of us through our Twitter, which is Asley underscore EcoCast. On there, there's also a, um, a little link tree thing that has the link to our uh, podcast as well as to the uh, Google form where you can submit proposal ideas. Um, and that can include your own work. We would love to hear from you and the, and the great things that you're doing. Um, I would also, I'm going to, I'm going to specifically call out. Um, I would love to get some graduate students on here, some, some, um, some young scholars, um, to, to hear about the, the things that you're doing and that you're finding, finding exciting. So that's a, a very specific, uh, you know, kind of, uh, finger wag that I'm doing right now. So, um, please, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great, great to hear, hear from a lot of you. Um, and then you can also uh, get a hold of us just through our Gmail directly. It's asley.ecocast at gmail.com. If you enjoy listening to EcoCast, you can help us reach a larger audience by liking, sharing, or tweeting about today's show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.